Hello, this is Dylan Pappenfuss, and welcome to the Financial Executive Podcast. Audits represent large investments of time and capital for any business. Today, we speak with Dr. Robert Neckel, Frederick E. Fisher Eminence Scholar in Accounting and the Director for the Center of International Accounting and Auditing Center on what to consider when preparing for an audit, the main drivers in audit fee increases, and the impact of emerging technologies on audit. Based on your research, what have been some of the main drivers in audit fee increases over the years? Uh, well, first of all, I think we, we actually know a lot about what drives audit fees. This is probably the most heavily researched area uh, in academia when it comes to audits because data is available. Uh, we can, you know, we've known uh, publicly available data on audit fees since roughly year 2000. And so now we're looking at going on 20 years of data for what the fees are that are paid by every listed company in the United States, at least in theory. Uh, so we've done, there's been, a, there's been literally hundreds of papers that have looked at this question, what drives audit fees? Uh, yeah, and there's, there's, there's a number of clear patterns that have arisen from that. Uh, clearly the biggest driver of audit fees is size. Uh, big companies take more to audit than small companies. Uh, that explains a phenomenal amount of the variance in fees, something like 70% uh, before you consider any other things that might be going on. Uh, so size does matter in this context. Uh, then there's these categories we look at, like complexity. Complexity can be based on how many subsidiaries does a company have? Do they have foreign operations? Uh, how many distinct product lines do they have? Things like that. Obviously, the more diverse the operations of the company, the more complexity and the harder it's going to be to audit. And essentially, when I say harder to audit, that means more effort and therefore higher fees. Uh, another major driver would be riskiness. Some companies and some industries just are more risky to audit than others. Uh, and so that risk is going to translate into more audit effort, which again shows up as more audit fees. Um, then another category that gets a little less attention would be actually the demand for audit. What does the client actually expect from the audit? One of the things that's kind of caused fees to go up, although they do go up and down, um, but since Sarbanes-Oxley um, is basically audit committees who uh, essentially are now responsible for the for managing the audit process itself. They want to make sure that things get done right because if an audit goes bad, you know, the, it's not just the auditor that's going to look bad, it's the audit committee that's going to look bad. So there's a demand effect here that audit committees want more out of their auditors. And now that auditors can directly communicate with the audit committee, again, because of Sarbanes-Oxley, there's a lot more coordination that goes on at that level. Um, internal control, the reporting requirement under Section 404 clearly has driven up audit fees, right? Because the that was essentially a whole new mandate that was put on the audit profession. And so by asking them to do something completely different and in addition to the regular audit, essentially you we saw back in 04 to 06 really a doubling of audit fees mm-hmm. they have, they actually came down after that as everybody started to figure out what that requirement really meant and how you would execute it but in the early days since nobody had really done an audit of internal control at that level it was hard to say what was going to be necessary what was unnecessary what maybe turned out to be too much work and so fees probably went up too much but um, yeah, those are I think the main drivers that I would think of there's probably some others out there we can think of but there's the ones come top of my head mm-hmm. that's great thank you 
Um, question number two, um, and you alluded to this in your in the past question, but over what periods have audit fees seen the greatest volatility according to your research? Well, like I said, they went up after Sarbanes-Oxley and they went up through about 07. And then we had the global financial crisis and they went, they went down, um, which personally made no sense to me because if anything, the global financial crisis created a period of risk that was unknown in recent history. And I would think that the, that, that audit clients and investors would have actually wanted more auditing going on at that point. But they did go down. Uh, I think part of that was the pressure to share the pain of the economy at that point in time. And so if everybody else was taking a cut, auditors you know, were asked to take a cut. Um, beyond, since then, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, what's happened to fees overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they've stabilized pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the things that tend to cause volatility are shocks to the system. Yeah. So if we had another, you know, if if we have another economic problem in the next year or so, you'll see fees uh, adjust. The interesting thing is, you know, they don't necessarily adjust in the direction that you would expect. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley increased fees, could have put in a lot of regulatory mandates that didn't exist. The global financial crisis reduced fees. Again, as a, in a period when there was probably more risk in the system than uh, we had realized. So, not sure why they went down other than that it was pure comp- competition. Because that's, that's the other wild card, is what are the audit firms doing out there in these markets? Uh, auditing tends to be a local market effect, meaning it's you know an audit in Chicago is not the same as an audit in Miami or New York or California. And so the level of competition and bidding for clients tends to be more localized and to some extent industry specific. And so if I'm a if if I'm a audit firm in Houston, I probably have a large interest in oil, oil and gas companies. Um, if I, if some, if one of my competitors has a dominant share of oil and gas clients, you know, the only way for me to get into that market is to essentially underbid those other, those other audit firms and potentially steal some clients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now that if, if there's new companies coming online, new IPOs, that's a different type of market. But as we've seen since Starbucks, actually, the IPO market has slowed down quite a bit since prior to 2002, although it's starting to come back a little bit now. And so what you end up with is these local market conditions that drive competition. And the other thing that's happening is clients don't go out for new audits, auditors very often. You know, they, they put out a tender uh, on average, something like every... Uh, 10 years. I'm not actually sure if that's the right number. It used to be before Sarbanes-Oxley, the average audit tenure was like 14 years. Uh, it's gone down since then. So that means that a client with 14 year tenure is not looking for a new audit firm. And so there's really no market movement. Uh, now when they do go out for a new auditor and there's some regulatory pressure to do that, although it's not a reg- it's not a requirement in the United States to get new auditors. Um, when they do that, well, there's some incumbent auditor who's probably left the field, but you still got three to six other audit firms out there who potentially could take over. And of course they all want the engagement because in some ways an audit is like an annuity. If you get the audit today, you're not going to get replaced next year. Uh, market doesn't actually like when auditors get replaced too frequently. And so if you bring in an engagement, you're looking at six to seven years minimum of having that engagement. So it's like an annuity because you get the fee every year and you do, you know, you do your job and keep going until the company decides they want to change again. Uh, so the, the economics of from the 
profession side of side of the equation is quite interesting as to what drives the competitive pricing of audits. It's fascinating. Thank you. Um, you touched on a number of things, um, a number of factors in that. What impact do, do changing accounting standards have on audit fees? Uh, that's an interesting question because in theory, in the year of a change, you would expect fees to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it depends on how significant the fee, the, the change is. Now, we've got some pretty serious accounting changes that, you know, that are going on right now in revenue, recognition, and leases and things. Uh, and so these raise some tricky questions. And the reality is not everybody necessarily knows how to implement these new standards. So there is a learning curve. So learning curve suggests more effort, maybe uh, less efficient engagement. And so you'd expect fees to potentially go up during the period mm-hmm. of transition. They won't, they won't necessarily stay up because of those issues. Um, now, from an economic theory point of view, it's actually a very interesting question because uh, the auditors, you would presume, know the most about how to implement these new standards, particularly compared to the client. And so there's actually a potential issue of the auditor going too far, you know, saying we have to do too much. You know, that, that may be an honest issue. They just don't know what they're going to have to do. So they, you know, conservative and say, this is how much is the time it's going to take to do this audit. And that tends to be higher than maybe in the long run it will be, ne- will be necessary. So that's, I think, why standards tend to drive up fees. Uh, we saw that with the, with a, on even on a bigger extent, was the internal control reporting back in 04. Nobody, like I said, nobody knew what that was going to involve. And so fees really literally doubled. Um, mm-hmm. With hindsight, people were saying, well, probably that was too much. It was overkill. And so there was some settling back. Um, but you can't actually say that the auditor charged too much because nobody really knew what, what the fair, what a fair amount of work was going to be to deal with that new issue. And so whenever you get a significant regulatory or standard change, uh, you're, you can expect that there's going to be a more uncertainty about what appropriate fee is and that they may trend up for a little while. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. You know, the year on year, the year on year audit fee may be a little higher as uh both sides of the clients and the auditors adjust to whatever the new standard is. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, here's a question I have. And if this is dumb, you know, don't worry about trying to answer it. Um, you know, conservatism is so prevalent in accounting and also, you know, in the mindset of auditors, they want to be conservative. They want to, you know, reduce liability and all these things. How does conservatism impact audit fees? Uh, okay, let me ask you to clarify that. That's not a dumb question, but I need a clarification. When you talk about conservatism, are you talking about accounting conservatism, which is kind of a technical uh, topic, or are you talking about just conservative judgments made by professionals? I'm not quite sure what you meant. Yeah, you're right. I, I definitely used both when I was in there. Um, not not the conceptual, um, more with uh, auditor's own conservatism. Well, okay, so... The, I mean, do they come in and are they too conservative in their judgment? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think the market and regulators worry too much about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because they tend to worry about the other the other side, right? That they'd be aggressive, they'd let clients get away with stuff that maybe was on the margin. Being conservative suggests you're going to make decisions that, at the margin 
tend to keep a company from being aggressive with their accounting. Mm -hmm. That's the way I would interpret what you said. So subject to that interpretation, and particularly in the United States with our litigation system, yeah, there is an incentive to be somewhat conservative because, you know, company auditors and companies don't usually get sued for reporting too little income. They get sued for overstating their income uh, and having it been exploded because it wasn't really there. Uh, so to some extent, conservatism is going to affect the decisions that the auditors make. Now, will that affect fees? That's an interesting question. I can't really directly answer that because what you're suggesting is are they actually going out and getting more evidence, doing more work than they actually really need to do? Uh, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest they would do that, but it also has not really been studied in depth, so I'm not mm -hmm. sure I would come to that conclusion. Interesting. I uh, I spoke with... I spoke with the CFO about that, and he that's that's one of the points, uh, one of his key takeaways. He's just like, everyone's just asking for way too much because they just want to cover everything just in case. But, um, but yeah, interesting. Well, I guess. Yeah, well, see, this is a complicated judgment. I mean, auditing yeah. is one of the most complex judgment fields there is because you are balancing a lot of different balls in the air to come to a conclusion is that whether financial statements are fairly presented or not. Mm -hmm. Now a CFO sitting at the top of their own, you know, job sees everything in theory that's going on in the company and they probably have formed their own opinion as to what's necessary. But they're not looking at it through the lens of an external auditor who comes in without all that advanced information, all that advanced knowledge, and they have to form their own independent opinion. I mean, if I walked in and said, ask the CFO, is everything okay? And they said, yeah, give you a thumbs up. You said, okay, that's good enough for me. That wouldn't be an audit. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah, nobody, nobody likes disruption from an audit. So it is not, a, it's not an unusual condition to expect that the other side thinks the auditors are doing too much. Um, now, having said that, there are, there's fee pressure. And if the auditor really was doing way too much, there's ways the company can come back and say, okay, this is, you know, you're charging too much. We need a fee, we need a fee cut, or we're going to go to, you know, go to tender and find a new auditor. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the reality is in a good audit relationship, that probably won't happen because both sides make an effort to understand what the other side's coming from. Uh, and in fact, I have a um, PhD student who just graduated who did a thesis on how do you actually get a client to accept difficult decisions? Now, if the auditors come in and said, we think something is not good, that's not a message that's easy to deliver to the client. Because that means the client's doing something wrong, they're gonna fix something, they're gonna adjust mm -hmm. their financial numbers. Uh, and through the study, we actually identified there's three key um, attributes or conditions that lead to a successful outcome of that process. One is for the auditor to be fully prepared to know what they're talking about, which you know, that sounds like common sense. Uh, the other, the second one is to actually have a strong team backing you up to be able to prepare you to have that conversation. And the third one is actually have a relationship with a client such that you can tell them this because there are multiple interactions. And so between clients and auditors. And so at some point, you know, a good auditor is probably gonna have to tell a client bad news. And how the client reacts to that depends on, first of all, on their own personality, but 
also on how have they handled all the prior communications? In other words, do they feel fairly positively disposed that the auditor is going to be fair and reasonable? If you've got that kind of foundation that's developed over time, then delivering bad news when you actually have to deliver bad news uh, possibly leads to a better outcome in many cases. And there's actually research that shows this uh, in our field, which looks at how clients and auditors negotiate audit differences. And so yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough one. But let's face it, this is a tough job and clients are never gonna be completely happy with the auditor. And the auditor, if they're doing their job, will always have a few things that they need to talk to the, to the client about that the client maybe doesn't really wanna talk about. It's fascinating. Thank you. You hit on something that uh, came up in an, in an interview with uh, one of our CFOs and she mentioned just that resolving disagreements with the auditor, because if you have a, a disagreement and you guys go your separate ways, you know, that is something that the auditor notes and that is, that's very serious. Um, mm-hmm. What is your advice for financial executives on, on those difficult discussions, on those disagreements and how to best resolve them? Well, let, first of all, let me back up a little bit on this because these, you know, these, these, this is the hard part. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. When there's when there's a difficult issue that has to be resolved, okay? Um, yeah, nobody really enjoys this, but it's a reality. This is part of the, the nature of the job. Um, in the thesis my student was working on, he actually had an interview with an auditor who told a story about a CFO who was unhappy because they were looking at some of their fixed asset acquisitions. And so the auditor goes into the CFO's office one day and finds that the entire office has been covered with pictures, photos of the various assets that they had claimed to acquire. Uh, because the CFO was really irritated by some of the questions. Uh, turned out that that CFO was pretty much out the door and six months later uh, because their attitude was not good and the, and the board and the audit committee eventually got involved because this communication goes up one side and down the other. I mean, the partner gets involved, it goes up to the board of directors and the audit committee and eventually if it's, you know, if one side's being unreasonable, yeah, then then there's going to be some resolution. One way of resolu- resolving that is to fire the auditor, but that is a costly, time-consuming pro- process. Uh, you hear about it when it happens because that's kind of like news. You don't hear about it so often when the client people end up getting in trouble because of some of the things that they're arguing about. So it goes both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a CFO who wants to be really, really difficult may actually cause an audit, an audit firm to resign. And having an, audit, having an audit firm resign is a bad sign too. Uh, so these are, there is a dynamic here at play that goes both ways. Um, now I actually lost the main thread of the question. What was the original question? <laughs> um, how to best you know, resolve disagreements? Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not the therapist to see CFOs and auditors, so I'm not sure I can answer that yeah. question directly. But it does require a mutual understanding mm-hmm. of which, what, where each side's coming from, and as much information, accurate, accurate information on the table as possible. I mean, some things are not really subject to much discussion. And sometimes it's black letter accounting law yeah. that says this is what it's got to be. And uh, so, and if one side says takes in a different opinion, it's kind of hard to defend. Yeah. The other thing about the financial statements is 
most of the numbers are estimates. Most of the key numbers are estimates and they're based on the future. Whether you're talking about valuing assets, particularly tier three assets, when you're talking about bad loans or bad debts from customers, when you're talking about warranty valuations or pension liability, these things all involve future estimates. And so nobody has the right answer. Right. There is, there's nobody has the right answer because nobody has a crystal ball. So the manager's going to come into a room with a number. The auditor's going to come into a room with a number. This may be oversimplifying, but let's say you got two numbers on the table and there's going to have to be a discussion to figure out how do you resolve where the, where you, where the two sides meet. Right. It would be fairly rare, I think, for one party to get their way all the time, but there has to be some resolution because the SEC doesn't accept uh, qualified opinions because you couldn't agree on what the number should be. You have to come to an agreement. Otherwise, the SEC bounces your report back. And so, yeah, it, 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 that is a, that's a tricky dynamic. And uh, I'm not an expert on that, but I think it is one of the most fascinating things about the audit, not so well understood. Mm-hmm. Really, from a, research, from a research point of view. Really like that answer. Thank you. Um, kind of moving back um, to internal controls, um, in your experience from what you've seen, how has the internal control environment changed over the past five years? I mean, it changed tremendously back, you know, 15 years ago, but more recently, how has it changed and how has that impacted audits? Well, it's gotten better. There's no doubt about that. Uh, when 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 Cyberdyne came out, I mean, this is like ancient history now, right? 2002 was a long time yeah. ago. Uh, I remember uh, talking to auditors who said, "We're not quite sure how we're going to do this." Uh, there was this document floating around called COSO, the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations, which put out a report on internal control, uh, which was fairly basic at the time. And that was, in theory, one of the sets of guidelines you could use for evaluating a company's internal control. Uh, since then, there's been some revisions and an update and applied to a more enterprise-wide basis. And with, at the focus, one thing that happened that was important, I think, is a focus change to risk management. Uh, and the reason that's important is because the reason you have control is because you have risk. Okay. I mean, the whole idea of having an internal control is because you're worried about something going wrong. Something going wrong means you have a risk. And so until we actually understood the risk structure of an organization, it's hard to figure out what the appropriate controls should be. Uh, other than kind of having a checklist, world plate approach saying, oh, everybody should do this, this, and this. Um, and so we've evolved our thinking to be much more sophisticated, taking uh, terminology is top-down risk-based holistic approach and process oriented. Mm-hmm. This idea that we start at the top, figure out what can go wrong at the top of the business, and then work our way down into the, into the, into the details. And this whole idea then is that, okay, what are the critical risks this organization has? How do they cope with those risks? Are they any good at coping with those risks? Do we have any performance indicators that suggest maybe they're not very good at coping those risks? And then the last question, which is the hard one, what does it mean to the audit? Like a well-run organization with good controls and no warning signs going off suggests a slightly easier audit because it's a less risky audit. But a company that has poor internal controls, has ineffective management, who has uh, badly designed processes, these are harder to audit. 
because there's so many things that could go wrong. And so that, that, that increase in risk without adequate internal control suggests the auditor's job's gonna be harder uh, and require more work, more money, more time. Uh, so over the last five years, actually going back longer than that, but certainly I think internal control across the board has gotten better. Companies understand this now, the auditors understand it better now, everybody understands it better. It's taught better for that matter in the universities and the programs, accounting programs. And so, and, and we've got better standards in place because COSO, the original COSO document, which I think originated in 1982, uh, has been updated significantly since then a couple times and has a much better complete picture of what we mean when we talk about control. Now having said that, it's a hard, it's a hard judgment to make. And let's put it in the context. We've been auditing net income for a hundred years and we still have debates about what that number means. How do you audit something like an, an assertion that internal control is effective? It's not even a number, right? And so the judgment that goes into that is even bigger than the judgment goes into auditing earnings. And we still have trickiness, tricky problems with that. So of mm -hmm. course it's hard to audit the judgment about or the assertion about internal control effectiveness. Um, and so it's still a learning curve, but no doubt about it. Internal controls across the board have gotten better. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, moving into the final questions here. We're seeing tremendous uh, potential with new emerging technologies like like RPA, blockchain, machine learning. Um, how do you think these tools are poised to impact the amount of work going into future audits? Oh, wow. That's that's that's. <laughs> That's the big question. Um, and I honestly don't think the audit firms know really what that means yet. Um, you know, I, I actually gave a speech recently in San Francisco where I made the incredulous assertion, some people call it stupid, that the future of auditing is not technology. Now let me explain that because of course all these technologies matter. Of course this is gonna change mm -hmm. the way we do things. It changes the way the company operates. And the only thing changes the way the company operates is gonna change the way the auditor operates. But from an audit profession point of view, I would argue that none of those things change the value proposition of auditing. Um, think about it. You could put, you know, Bluetooth and a backup camera on a horse-drawn buggy, but it's not going to make it the future of transportation. So technology alone doesn't change the audit or what the auditor's goal is. It does, however, and this is the key, what point I want to get to, is that it changes can change dramatically how the auditor does their job. Now, we are seeing that the firms are trying to hire more tech-savvy, entry-level people. They may have to start hiring more advanced, more senior people. Um, you know, schools have to modify what they're doing. You know, blockchains, I think, is an interesting example. You know, in theory, blockchains, if done, if taken to the logical step, almost ob obviates the need for internal control. Now, I don't think we're gonna see that, certainly not in my lifetime. Uh, for one thing, public blockchains are way too complex for the millions of transactions I think that most companies have to process. But proprietary blockchains, designed for those purposes only, could very well make that happen. And if the trust is built into the into the transaction flow via blockchain, what are the implications then for the need for internal control? Uh, assuming that the blockchain technology is 
the integrity of that blockchain technology is solid. Well, I don't know how to do, how to figure that out. Somebody with more training in, tech, in the technical aspects would have to figure that out, which suggests slightly different approach to who we hire as auditors and what kind of trainings and skills they need to have. But in the end, the, the, the value proposition is the same. Are the numbers reliable? Are they reasonably stated so that an external investor or other external parties can reasonably rely upon these numbers to make their own decisions? Uh, you know, machine learning, Yes, that's going to be an interesting uh, tool. Uh, how far can it go? I don't know. And one thing it won't do is it won't take judgment out of the audit process because, as I said, to the extent that few, the, the numbers involve future events and future allowances and estimations, these things are always going to have some element of judgment. It may actually be a higher level of judgment than we see now. So, guys. I think uh, if not, if one thing I can say for certain, the accounting firms have plenty of incentives to worry about how they get this right. 